So this lecture is called Shame and Grace in Gilead, Reflections on the Novels of Marilyn Robinson. Um, let's just get a show of hands who's read anything by Marilyn Robinson before. Okay, so one, two, three, four, five people. That's good, that's better than I was expecting, honestly. So it's great. <laughs> that always helps when a few people at least know the person you're talking about. Well, there's one person online. <laughs> so, so six and a half years ago, my friend Sarah and I drove across America together. Um, she was a, a friend I'd met at Labrie and when we were driving across, we stopped in Iowa City uh, to stay with our mutual friend, Nathan. And during his tour of the city, Nathan drove us into the suburbs and pulled over across from this ordinary looking blue house. I think this is it, he said. Sarah and I were confused, what's it? He said, it took me two hours of Googling, but I think that this is the place. I'm pretty sure this is Marilyn Robinson's house. <laughs> Immediately, Sarah and I were jumping up and down in our seats, exclaiming, imagine what she must have written here. <laughs> I think it was one of the few fangirl moments I have ever had in my life. So I'm grateful to Nathan. I owe him one for that. <laughs> but I, I first discovered Marilyn Robinson through Labrie. Um, my friend Matt was a helper with me. And uh, he was shocked that I hadn't read her. He said, Gilead's my favorite novel. You have to read her. Uh, Labrie, I think, has this unofficial canon of literary saints that come up all the time. And one of these is Marilyn Robinson. Um, and since I first read Gilead, that was the first novel I read, uh, she has become one of my favorite novelists. So I'm really excited to share her with you tonight. I realized how hard it is to lecture on a novelist, and I think she might be the only person I would do it for. So uh, you're welcome, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a lot to cover. And, and also because I didn't give you homework beforehand, most of you, most of you, well, half of you maybe, but have, have not read her. Lots of you have not read her. So uh, my lecture is not going to do justice to her beautiful writing, <laughs> um, but I will try. And uh, I, I hope that I can give you a sense of her writing style. So I will, I will use a few longer blocks of, of text, um, but I'll put them up on the PowerPoint. So hopefully that helps you. And then I wanna get into some of the themes of her work. So, and there, there are some spoilers in this lecture. I apologize to those of you who have not read all the novels, but there's really no way around it. Um, and the novels are really a lot more about the characters than the plot anyway, so I don't feel really bad. Okay, so there are a lot of themes that could be explored in these novels, fathers and sons, theological differences, civil rights, country versus city, vagrancy, etc. But tonight, what I want to focus on what I think is probably the central theme of all these novels, and that is grace. So I'm going to pick up on two ways that grace is mediated through Robinson's novels. And the first is the created world. So these moments of particular beauty that are rooted in the physical. And the second is through human relationships. I am going to spend a lot longer in the relationships section and I will dive into the characters and focus on a few, a few core relationships and how they uh, minister grace to each other. And finally, I want to look at uh, how the, these ways of she communicates grace are, are uh, rooted in a Christian worldview and, and maybe some place, places we can maybe push back a little bit too, to keep it spicy. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to start by giving you a very quick biography of Marilyn Robinson. Um, here she is. 
the woman, the myth, the legend. Um, <laughs> uh, so she was born in Sandpoint, Idaho in 1943. Um, she, she was married and had two sons and, and later divorced. Uh, she studied literature at Brown University. And then she took her PhD, which was either in philosophy or English, depending on which sources you read. So I'm still confused on this point at the University of Washington. Uh, and she wrote her dissertation on Shakespeare. So I would assume literature, but um, depends if you believe Wikipedia. So she eventually moved to Iowa City to teach at the Writers Workshop, which is very famous, um, probably the famous in the state's place for writers train. Uh, and she taught there in two until 2016. She was raised Presbyterian and she's now a Congregationalist and she has also preached at her church as well. Um, her theology is highly influenced by John Calvin, Becca's favorite, <laughs> and her novels reflect this and they're often grappling with issues around predestination. Um, Robinson has also published nonfiction books, a few collections of essays and one philosophical work, Absence of Mind. I read Absence of Mind. <laughs> And my mind was absent by the end of it because it was like way over my head. She is very smart. And I'm really glad I'm not lecturing on that book tonight. Okay, so these are, uh, these, this is the Gilead series of novels. Um, her, Robinson's first novel, Housekeeping, was published in 1980. And it's not related to this series. But then 24 years later, she published her next novel, uh, which is Gilead. Um, and that's, that's like a very unusually long gap for a novelist. It's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but each novel since then, since Gilead, Home, Lila, and Jack, has followed the characters that Robinson introduced in Gilead. And I'm not really going to look at housekeeping because I want to stay rooted in this world of Gilead. But if you do get a chance to read it, it definitely reflects a lot of the same themes. And all of these novels, the Gilead novels, the quartet can be actually read in any order. So it doesn't matter which one you start with because they overlap in timeline and, and in characters. Um, okay, so before I get into the meat of the novels, I'm just gonna tell you briefly what they're about. Okay, so Gilead is the name of a fictional small town in Iowa by the West Nishnabotna River. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and Robinson said that she was inspired to write about Iowa when she first moved there um, and began researching the history of Iowa um, she said that most people in Iowa are actually not very familiar with their own history, um, especially its connection to abolition and to civil rights um, for African Americans. So that's a theme that comes out in her novels as well. Okay, so I just chose random photos of people from the 40s <laughs> to uh, illustrate the characters. They might be famous, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> but I thought it might help you better if you have like some visual image of, of who they might be, just people I thought they could look like. Uh, okay, so the quartet of novels focuses on two ministers, John Ames and Robert Boughton and their families, um, especially Ames's wife, Lila, and Boughton's son, Jack. Ames and Boughton are best friends. Boughton has a large family of, of adult children in the book mostly. And uh, include, this includes Jack, his prodigal son, who's named after Ames. So John is, or Jack is short for John. I didn't know that for a long time. Um, Ames has been single and childless since his first wife died in childbirth along with their baby. Gilead is an epistolary novel. Anybody know what that word means, epistolary? <laughs> Who's the nerd? Written in letters, yes. 
So nice one, Naomi Goldstar. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, it's written in letters. It, it has a quite slow, it's probably the slowest out of all of them. It has a lot of wisdom lines um, with a very meditative tone. And, and so John Ames is the one who's writing the letters. He has married a much younger woman, Lila, and they have a son together named Robbie. Ames has a heart condition. He tells you this right at the beginning of the books, not much of a spoiler. And he, he knows that he won't have much longer to live. And so he's not expecting to see his son grow up. Um, so he writes him a series of letters to tell him about his family history, which has some reflections on American history and to reflect on life and faith. So that's why you kind of get this meditative tone because it's a father passing on this wisdom to his son that he's gathered over his life. And, and kind of the events that continue to happen. <laughs> so it's sort of a journal as well. Okay. Now Home is the next one that was published. Uh, and it's told from the perspective of Glory, the youngest daughter of the Boutons. Um, and she, she returns home to help her aging father. Then her brother Jack, the black sheep of the family, as I said, returns for a visit. And this is his first visit back home in 20 years. So Jack has drinking problems, he's extremely private, and he's often cynical, but this kind of tender friendship develops between he and Glory. And the novel primarily explores the relationships between the three Boutons, but it also touches on Jack's relationship with his namesake, John Eames, uh, and that is also explored in the novel Gilead. Okay. <laughs> um, so Lila, there's two, two novels named after people. Lila is the story of Ames's wife, um, from her childhood to her marriage to her pregnancy. And as a child, Lila is taken away from her abusive home by a vagrant woman named Doll. Uh, so she got her last name as a, a variation in the spelling of Doll. Uh, the novel follows their life as drifters and working in the fields, um, kind of these, these itinerant people. And eventually Lila ends up working in a brothel in St. Louis. And that's kind of like the low point of the novel for her. When she escapes the city, she finds herself randomly in Gilead where the strange courtship begins between her and John Ames, who is much older than her and a, a preacher, a very different kind of person. Um, and she, she tells him upright, uh, straight out, uh, you ought to marry me. <laughs> and he does. Although she finds it very hard to trust him and to settle down into this kind of domestic life. And he's always afraid that she's going to leave. Um, okay, so the most recent novel, Jack, was released a year ago, 2020, for anyone listening. Jack Boughton is a petty thief, a liar, an alcoholic, and he can't hold down a steady job. But he's also loves poetry and has this very sensitive side and this kind of uneasy tenderness. Um, and so he's kind of a study in opposites in this way. Um, then this novel follows the romance that develops between, in St. Louis, between Jack and Della. Um, Della is a young black woman who's also a minister's daughter. She's educated and she works uh, at a high school, the first high school that teaches black children. So uh, at the time it was illegal for, for a white person and a black person to get married. And so a lot of the novel kind of re revolves around this, this tension of being seen together, the scandal that it would create and whether they can be together in the end. Okay, so that's a very brief synopsis of the novels. And I really think each one of them is lovely in its own way and, and different people I know um, kind of have different favorites. I remember when, when my friend Sarah, the one who went to Iowa City with me, 
finish Lila, she just like came in the room and put her, her head on my knee and she said, it's so beautiful. <laughs> um, and another friend told me she always returns to Gilead when she wants to be reassured and calmed kind of. And I think home is probably my favorite just because I really relate to the character of Glory and I love Jack. He's like my favorite character in literature. Uh, and, and home was one of those novels just sort of came to me at the right time. And I, I remember when I finished it, I just curled up in my bed and wept. <laughs> and I, I always find that Marilyn Robinson's novels sort of help me see beauty through the difficult things in life because she doesn't sugarcoat things, but there's also this, this deep beauty as well. Um, so now that I've introduced you to the stories and to the characters, we're gonna talk about how this idea of grace comes through in these four novels. So a journalist in the Atlantic comments, Marilyn Robinson tracks the movements of grace as if it were a wild animal, appearing for fleeting intervals and then disappearing past the range of vision, emerging again where we least expect to find it. Her novels are interested in what makes grace necessary at all, shame and its afterlife, loss and its residue, the limits and betrayals of intimacy. So you can hear that pairing of shame and grace there. So not only is grace the theme that I wanna pick up on, this idea of this unmerited favor, this abundance, but I'm going to narrow it even more and emphasize what it means to see correctly, to see the other correctly. So grace is always being extended to us, but can we see it? Robinson's novels echo the biblical call to have eyes that not only see, but also perceive. So first we're gonna talk about moments that the characters have of seeing the world around them, and then about their experiences of being seen in, in, uh, by others in a way that brings either glory or shame. So the first part is grace and ordinary life. My friend and poetry instructor, Carla, some of you know her, told us in class that the poet's job is to rehabilitate old cliches, rehabilitate old cliches. This means that we look at something that we've become so used to seeing and we try to see it anew as if we were seeing it for the first time, like the eyes of a child. Once in class, we had to try and write new metaphors for either the ocean or for snow. That was a really hard because those are two things that have been written about so many times. Um, but the poet has to learn this way of making the familiar unfamiliar so that we can encounter it again as the gift that it is. And the, the Gilead novels are full of snapshots that capture a seemingly insignificant moment or an object and transform it by being chosen. If you've done some photography, you know what it's like to, to narrow in on one moment and to kind of give it your attention. Um, and, and just by looking at it, sometimes it can give it elevated status, even though we're very inundated with photographs in our culture. Um, so my former colleague, Philip Johnston said that love is a committed attending. And the way that Robinson and her characters look at the world is a committed attending noticing and valuing the ordinary parts of life. And in doing so, they are able to receive the moments of the beauty of these moments as a gift. The characters experience grace, this unexpected abundance and joy through ordinary means. But so do we as readers. The ordinary means of paper and ink draw us into an ordinary world, whether a small town or a dirty city where we can encounter an extraordinary grace. 
So each moment that Robinson offers us through the eyes of her characters is a chance for us to encounter God's glory. And in that counter, encounter, to remind us that we can also look at our own non-fictional lives in the same way. And in this way, I think that Robinson really communicates a sacramental view of reality, that the created world is an outward sign of an invisible grace. And out of all four novels, Gilead contains the most of these small sacred moments. Because Ames is preparing himself for death, he often reflects on the things that he loves about his life with a bittersweet awareness that their nature is temp temporal for him. Um, so Ames writes to his son, I want to talk about the gift of physical particularity and how blessing and sacrament are mediated through it. I have been thinking lately how I have loved my physical life. And Ames often notes these moments of beauty, little snapshots. So near the beginning of the novel, Ames tells about passing two young men on the street. He says, I know who they are. They work at the garage. They're not church going, either one of them, just decent rascally young fellows who have to be joking all the time. And there they were, propped against the garage wall in the sunshine, lighting up their cigarettes. They're always so black with grease and so strong with gasoline. I don't know why they don't catch fire themselves. They are passing remarks back and forth the way they do and laughing that wicked way they have. And it seemed beautiful to me. It is an amazing thing to watch people laugh the way it sort of takes them over. So you can see something ordinary like seeing two mechanics joking around is somehow through the way that he sees the world and the preciousness of, of even human beings um, kind of baptized. <laughs> and uh, in another place, he reflects on a memory he had of walking to church one morning. There was a young couple strolling along half a block ahead of me. The sun had come up brilliantly after a heavy rain and the trees were glistening and very wet. On some impulse, plain exuberance, I suppose, the fellow jumped up and caught hold of a branch and a storm of luminous water came pouring down on the two of them. And they laughed and took off running, the girl sweeping water off her hair and her dress as if she were a little bit disgusted, but she wasn't. It was a beautiful thing to see, like something from a myth. I don't know why I thought of that now, except perhaps because it is easy to believe in such moments, that water was made primarily for blessing and only secondarily for growing vegetables or doing the wash. I wish I had paid more attention to it. My list of regrets may seem unusual, but who can know that they are really? This is an interesting planet. It deserves all the attention you can give it. I like those two final lines. And I like how he's, he, he says it's like something from a myth, even though it's just a very ordinary moment, but he, he sees something kind of universal. And it's a kind of baptism moment, something that Ames recognizes as this kind of blessing. Um, he uses that word blessing. And uh, he, this theme of baptism runs throughout the novel Gilead. Uh, when Ames is young, he and his friends try to baptize some kittens because they're worried about their, their fate. And their dad says, well, you have to, you have to treat the sacraments in a, in a more uh, reverential way. But he, he felt he remembers this moment of, of the attention of blessing the kittens and what a, what a profound moment that was for him. Um, he also baptizes Jack and he has this kind of begrudging attitude towards this. Like he doesn't, he's not able to feel a connection with Jack. 
Um, and then he also baptizes Lila, who is very dear to him. And that's a very moving moment where he baptizes um, the woman who will become his wife. So he says that water is ordinary, but it's uniquely suited for its, by its purity to be the means of the sacrament. So in an ordinary element, the earthly and the heavenly are joined. And Belton, the other old minister who's getting close to death as well, says that he has been thinking more about heaven lately. And he tells Ames, mainly I just think about the splendors of the world and multiply by two. I'd multiply by 10 or 12 if I had the energy, but two is much more than sufficient for my purposes. Robinson gives us some heavenly glimpses in the way that she attends to the beauty of ordinary things. She seems to be inviting us into this way of seeing the world around us and giving thanks for it. These two old men still have a childlike kind of wonder, but it's made bittersweet by their many experiences of fragility and loss. Ames and Boughton enjoy the beauty of the ordinary world in part because they won't have it for that much longer. But Jack is a generation younger uh, and he begins to appreciate beauty more in his relationship with Della as it develops. So he starts to imagine things through his, her eyes and he <laughs> buys a geranium to put on the windowsill of his bleak room in this depressing boarding house. And he imagines her walking to his room and seeing, seeing this flower. Um, whatever was pleasing about the plant was much enhanced by the cat. Here he was again imagining Della stepping into his room uh, quite quietly, tentatively. She would glance around to see what kind of room it was and be charmed by something, reassured. At first it was a stack of library books on his dresser, all of them poetry. Then it was the flower on the books. He put his little picture of the river on the dresser too, then put it back in his suitcase because if the clerk noticed it, he might steal it, literally or in effect. But the cat sleeping in the sunlight by the geranium, he would have have to look at her face, the way it brightened and softened when she saw something that charmed her. So uh, later on, Jack comes home to find the boarding house clerk and the clerk's friend in his room looking at the geranium. The clerk says, nobody brings flowers in here. And he insinuates that Jack's planning to have a woman up to spend the night with him. So Jack suddenly feels ashamed of this flower um, that he thought would protect him from other people's judgments. He has this, um, he, he says that it really alters the way he sees the room. And Robinson writes, he even dreamed one night that he heard those heavy shoes on the stairs, the police, but this time when they came through the door, they were distracted by the sight of the geranium as if it refuted suspicion, dispelling the mild aver aversion felt toward him and his kind by the constabulary. So he, he gets this kind of protection from the beauty, but then when the clerk comes in and sees him standing there with his friend making fun of it. He feels like this thing that he'd seen was so beautiful is now just scorned and he's seen as disreputable somehow in connection with it. And I don't know if you have ever had this experience uh, where something that you really loved, someone mm -hmm. else thought was silly or, um, or even you know bad in some way. I, I was trying to think about experiences I've had like this and. I was thinking of when I was a little girl, probably nine or so, Sarah Best's age, um, I begged my mom for this pair of lace up black boots 
because I wanted to look like Laura, Laura Ingalls from Little House on the Prairie. And uh, I, I was walking around the playground on the back of the heels, just so proud of myself. And I thought, wow, I'm so special and cool. And uh, then one of the older girls, a few years older than me, came over. And I, I discovered later it was on a dare, but she told me, those are the ugliest shoes I've ever seen. And I was just so deflated and so ashamed. Um, these boots that I thought made me special actually made me uncool and laughed at. And I think that this girl actually saw how I felt because um, it was funny, but years later, she, and when we were adults, she added me to Facebook and I hadn't spoken to her since I was a child. Uh, and she apologized <laughs> for this incident. She had remembered it. She said, I remember all those years and I felt so bad that I said that to you. And I wasn't really scarred for life, but, <laughs> but there was a moment of grace in that, you know, that, that she, she recognized um, how, how much that can tear someone down and uh, that I could forgive her, even though it wasn't exactly, you know, keeping me up at night, but there was some kind of grace through that. So I think we, we can see that how we perceive objects external to us is also affected by how others perceive them. Um, but we have the choice to attend to the beauty that is offered to us rather than to take this cynical position that just constantly seeks to diminish and to destroy the beauty around us. And to the Christian, the ordinary is never just ordinary, but it's also the place that God makes his home among us. So having the eyes to see this is also the gift of grace. Okay, so that's a little section on how Robinson directs us to the beauty in the ordinary world around us. And um, now we're going to talk about how uh, the relationships between the characters communicate grace. Um, and as in the previous section, I want to emphasize the idea that clear seeing is necessary to perceive and to receive grace, both perceive and receive. Uh, but because we're now talking about relationships, it's not just looking at other things and perceiving them. There's also a looking back of being seen. And all of us, I'm sure, know this experience of feeling like someone can see through the facade that we so carefully construct. Have you ever noticed how different that experience is depending on it, who is doing the scene? When some people see through you, you feel worthless and ashamed. They see through you and they confirm your worst fears about yourself, the ones that you're always trying to hide or to ignore. But when some people see through you, you feel known, accepted, and loved. They see you in the way that God has created you to be, with a level of glory that you probably can't even see in yourself. They don't ignore your faults, but they emphasize the imago dei, the image of God in you. So being seen, which involves being known, can either bring us great shame or great grace. And I want to look at how these relationships in Gilead and in St. Louis, because that's where Jack is mostly set, use this idea of seeing and of being seen. I'm mostly gonna talk about Lila, Jack, and Ames because I have limited space and they're the most important characters. So I'm gonna start with Lila. As I told you before, when Lila ends up in St. Louis, she goes to work in a brothel um, and her life there is just miserable. She is given the name Rosie. She wants the name doll after her kind of mother figure, but, but the, the mistress says, oh, we already have a doll, you can be Rosie. It makes her dye her hair red and she wears a pink dress and high heeled shoes. And the other girls tell her, just pretend you're pretty so they can pretend you're pretty. But nobody really wants her, not even the clients. And at the brothel, she meets a man named Mac, 
all the girls kind of like this guy because he seems more like a man you might want around even if he wasn't paying as she puts it. Yeah, there's something a little mean about the way that he laughs and he likes to make them jealous of each other. Robinson says, Lila was horribly in love with that man. You can't go on thinking about nothing at all. And he had a nice face and that laugh. And what harm was there in it since she could hardly even bring herself to look at him. But he could tell somehow and he started teasing her about it. Rosie, Rosie, give me a smile, he would say. And she couldn't do that at all because she just wanted to hide her face. Rosie, give me a peck on the cheek, just a little one, making a joke of her when he was the only thing she cared about in this world. And he seemed to know it. The way that Mac looks at Lila exposes her tender feelings and shames them. Lila finds being seen by him both compelling and very painful. Lila reflects that Mac would look at every single thing in the world as if it had a price tag on it. And he knew it wasn't worth half that much because he could see what the paint hid, where the rot was. So that's that idea of seeing through something, but it's to diminish it and to see what's wrong with it. Mac doesn't respect Lila's humanity or value the worth of her love. Her vulnerability is something to laugh at rather than to treasure. Lila is very aware that nobody who looks at her sees anything beautiful or special. She's just one of the crowd. She says, I got shame like a habit. The only thing I feel except when I'm alone. It's hard for her to trust anyone. And she always carries the knife doll gave her to protect herself. But when she meets John Ames, she experiences someone who looks at her differently. In Gilead, Lila and Ames first encounter each other when she enters his church during the service. Oh, that's so, uh, yeah, Robinson says, his eyes drifted across the congregation and rested on her face as if he thought she might know what he meant and could say, yes, it was true. What he meant, if not the words he could find to put in it. Now that she was his wife, so this is after they get married, he looked at her whenever he mentioned something they might've talked about to let her know he thought about the questions she asked him or questions she knew he asked himself. So he, he looked at her in that dignifying way when he first saw her. And now that they have this relationship, he continues to look at her with value and dignify her questions. And Lila wonders why Ames can't see what everyone else sees when they look at her, which is that she's worthless. Um, why does he see her as worthwhile instead? She tells Ames she doesn't want to talk about her past with him because every time he looked at her, he would remember that. She says, maybe I don't want you looking at me that way. And he responds, I like to look at you, Lila, my wife. There's a lot of pleasure in it for me. When Ames looks at Lila, he sees her glory. Mac never even knew Lila's real name, but Ames uses it and he adds proudly, she's his wife. Ames writes to his son, at the root of real honor is always a sense of the sacredness of the person who is its object. In the particular instance of your mother, I know that if you are attentive to her in this way, you will find a very great loveliness in her. When you love someone to the degree you love her, you see her as God sees her. And that is an instruction in the nature of God and humankind and of being itself. When you love someone to the degree you love her, you see her as God sees her. And that is an instruction in the nature of God and humankind and of being itself. 
So Ames looks at Lila in this very dignifying way, and in that way, he communicates God's love to her, how God sees her. Ames is also struck by how Lila looks at him when she first sees him. There was a seriousness about her that seemed almost like a kind of anger, as though she might say, I came here from whatever unspeakable distance and from whatever unimaginable otherness just to oblige your prayers. Now say something with a little meaning in it. My sermon was like ashes on my tongue. Ames feels seen by Lila. Although Lila is homeless and penniless, a former prostitute, much younger than him, and far less educated, Ames feels convicted by her presence in his church. She sees through him, she, he feels, but he's drawn to this. Lila also grapples with what it means to be seen by God. She's struck by the passage in Ezekiel that talks about Israel as a child cast out and weltering in its blood until God take, ha, has pity on it and washes the blood from it. She thinks that blood is the shame of having no one who takes any care of you. For Lila, this reminds her of her own childhood neglect and she wonders why God allows it to happen or things like that to other children. Dahl is the one who rescued her from having no one to take any care of her. The one who saw her as worthwhile. And Ames has done the same for Lila once again. He has had compassion towards her. And Lila intends to do the same for her own child, who she talks to all throughout the novel, Lila. So being seen and loved leaves a family heritage. Ames writes to his son, your mother has watched every moment of your life almost, and she loves you as God does, to the marrow of your bones. So that is the honoring of the child. You see how godlike it is to love the being of someone. Your existence is a delight to us. Honor is the opposite of shame and how we look at people. And in Robinson's writing, it's, it's most often being seen as glorious that honors someone. More than any other character in the novels, Jack struggles with shame. Jack is highly aware of how other people see him. A lot of Jack's story actually has to do with what clothes he's wearing and what state they're in and what that says about him. So when he first meets Della, he's wearing a dark suit that he bought to go home for his mother's funeral, but he never actually went home for it. And Della mistakes him for a preacher because of the dark suit, I guess that's the thing preachers wear, I didn't know, and invites him in for tea. And other people often call him preacher, sometimes by mistake, but sometimes as an insult. John Ames comments about him, there's a way of being formal and deferential and at the same time cordial while maintaining an air of dignified authority, which is preacherly. Of sheer and perfect preacherliness, I have never seen a finer example than this Jack Bouton. He's in that he is or was. Jack decides he has to buy a more raffish looking suit so that he won't be mistaken for something he's not. He buys most of his clothes from a store that gets things from men who died. And he's, so he's wearing clothes that aren't his own, to some degree borrowing their previous owner's identity. And he's never quite settled into who he is. In another scene, a strange man wakes Jack up where he's sleeping on a grave, a very romantic thing to do. Uh, and he gives him his job of planting flowers in the cemetery, he just hands him a bag and say, you want my job? And he takes off his coveralls and gives them to Jack and the coveralls are huge and baggy and don't fit. And then a man comes along and, and sort of makes an accusation to Jack and Jack's afraid, oh, I, I think this guy's trying to escape from a crime <laughs> and now I've got his clothes on, so what do I do? Um, so he's kind of always got these, these other people's identities through his clothes. 
Uh, and when Jack moves to Chicago at one point in the novel, he just stumbles into this almost perfect life with work and housing that seem too good to be true. He even commissions a tailor to make a bespoke suit for him. Finally, he will be dressed like himself in a way that really fits. But an attempt at honesty about his relationship with Della quickly turns his whole life sour and he abandons Chicago with his suit forever unfinished, hanging in the tailors. It seems that Jack can never quite become himself. He's always boring his identity from other people, always subject to how other people see him, not how he wants to be seen. A lot of the novel, Jack plays with the dangers of being seen, how the neighbors talk about Jack when he's always walking past Della's house, what the clerk at Jack's rooming house will do if he sees Jack bringing a black woman up to his room, what the people outside of a black church think when they see Jack examining the lining of his hat and mistake him for a panhandler and start giving him money. Um, Jack finds the darkness of night a relief from being seen. A large portion of the novel, most of the beginning of it, follows Jack and Della as they wander around the Bellefontaine Cemetery. Um, they both happen to encounter each other there at night and they're stuck there until the gates open in the morning. Maybe not the most probable thing, but it's very romantic. Um, and the darkness obscures everything around them. Jack's disheveled appearance and Della's dark skin. They are, as Marilyn Robinson said in one interview, just voices, just two people talking. Even though they're aware of the consequences of being seen together, this is much less probable in a graveyard at night. So they can walk in this public space, talking about what they'd do if they were the only ones left at the end of the world. The darkness is friendly to them because it hides them from unfriendly eyes, and in a way hides their differences from each other and even from themselves. Jack always seems to have seen Della as beautiful. When he looks at her, he sees her not just as his equal, but in fact, most of the time is better than him. And he feels honored that she would choose him, even though he's always afraid of disappointing or hurting her. Unlike most white men of his era, he doesn't see her blackness as something that makes her less attractive or less human. To him, it's just part of who she is. And there's a sort of innocence in this way of being, a part of Jack that's actually more moral than the world that judges him constantly. However, one critic did comment that Jack also doesn't really express that much curiosity in how Della's African-American heritage has shaped her experience, which does seem true to me. And I think it's difficult to emphasize both differences and the shared humanity, which is something I'll talk about later. Um, so Jack starts attending this black church where he was mistaken for a panhandler, basically they drag him in. Um, and the minister Hutchins becomes a sort of father figure to Jack. There's lots of ministers that show up in this series of novels. And when Jack opens up to him about Della, he wonders, did the minister know that the lenses of his glasses were as opaque as two moons, a little backward tilt of his head and his eyes vanished. So Jack is not really sure how Hutchins sees him. And throughout the novel, that's complicated because as a minister, Hutchins represents both God and Jack's father and probably Ames as well to people that Jack has very complex feelings about. Sometimes in, in Hutchins' sermons, Jack thinks that Hutchins is accusing him directly. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes he is directly confrontational in their personal meetings because he wants to protect Della uh, from the consequences of her losing her job and, and uh, her reputation. But he can also be comp compassionate and encouraging to Jack. So in one conversation, he says, Mr. Ames, if the Lord thinks you need punishing, you can trust him to see to it. 
he knows where to find you. If he's showing you a little grace in the meantime, he probably won't mind if you enjoy it. <laughs> but Jack's not sure whether his relationship with Della is grace or punishment, since it's so dangerous, but it makes his life feel bearable. The dangers of intimacy, of being known and seen, and the burden that that puts on us is something Robinson returns to in all of her novels. Jack's boss gives him the nickname Slick, and often Jack tries to look this part, a man of the world who's tough and can survive. But in one moment, this facade is pierced through. Della's sister, Julia, comes up from Memphis to visit and to persuade Della against this relationship with Jack. Jack and Della aren't legally allowed to marry, but they decide their relationship is going to be a marriage regardless. And Julia's disgusted by this. She says, what do you even know about this, Jack? How many women has he one flesh with? You've never even asked him, have you? I bet you wouldn't dare. Just look at him. The naked man in his clothes was suddenly starkly exposed. Slick was no longer a refuge. He was an indictment, a false but telling testimony against himself, an attempt to look hard because he was not, wise in the ways of the streets because he was not, dissolute because this could not be helped anyway. There was no John Ames Boughton to step out of this disguise, this carapace. There was hardly even a Jack Boughton. He offered that name to people sometimes as if it opened him to some kind of familiarity. But he was familiar with no one, not even Della, he thought, who did not look at him though she held firmly to his hand. So Julia's words, just look at him, make Jack feel at once exposed and estranged even from himself. He feels like he has no true self, just the disguises that he wears. These words, just look at him, continue to echo through his mind. Being seen is fearful to Jack, but it's also the primary way he encounters grace, mainly through Della. Della is the one who initiates the risks of being seen with Jack. She wants to introduce him to her brother when they run into him at a um, park, public park, but Jack's afraid. Um, and it becomes clear what she thinks of him uh, in one passage where she says, we all have souls. We know this, but just because it's a habit to believe it, not because it's really visible to us most of the time. But once in a lifetime, maybe, you look at a stranger and you see a soul, a glorious presence out of place in this world. And if you love God, every choice is made for you. There is no turning away. You've seen the mystery. You've seen what life is about, what it's for. And a soul has no earthly qualities, no history among the things of this world, no guilt or injury or failure, no more than a flame would have. There is nothing to be said about it except that it is a holy human soul and it is a miracle when you recognize it. So Della tells Jack that she learned this from meeting him because his soul shines the brightest to her. And you might be wondering exactly what this quote means. <laughs> um, I do too, and I will go into it more later in the last part of the talk. We talked about this at lunch today as well. Um, but for now, we can say that the way that Della looks at Jack is a sort of seeing through his facade, these different suits that he wears. Um, and, and this is similar to what her sister Julia does, but Della sees Jack in a different way with a glory. Even though she gets frustrated and sometimes angry at certain things he does, she has a high value for him. This value is something that he tries to live into to be worthy of. Her seeing him as human, 
makes him act more human too. So remember how we talked about how other people see certain things around us can also change how we see them. Well, how people see us can also change how we see ourselves. In psychology, this is called reflected self-appraisal. So Robinson says, exposure was a particular nightmare of Jack's. Jack's fear of being exposed actually starts to turn outward in compassion to a surprising object. He realizes that Della's entire neighborhood is going to be destroyed when the city exercises eminent domain. And that's actually what happened in St. Louis, the African-American neighborhood where Della lives in the novel is where the St. Louis um, gateway arches, now a giant sculpture. They just tore the whole thing down, including many churches. Um, so Jack imagines these churches being destroyed by wrecking balls. And you can look at some of these photos online too. Uh, and, and he thinks about their rooms being exposed to the light. And that's, that's kind of a fearful thing for him. So he, he has this moment of compassion. Um, and when he thinks about the African-American church he's been attending, he thinks about its painting of Jesus being exposed to the one that hangs up. Um, surely the Baptist would remove that rather bad painting of Christ ascending that hung behind the choir, put it away somewhere before a wrecking ball exposed it to the street where its awkwardness desacralized ungraced would make a joke of it. It was the earnest sign of solemn hope. It was a gloss on a beautiful text in the form of a clumsy image, which he sometimes thought, if no other provision was made for it, he would steal and carry away to his room. So Jack imagines rearranging his furniture around the giant picture and sleeping under Jesus's blessing hands. Pictures of Jesus actually show up all throughout this novel on Della's piano and in her father's house and in Jack's memory of his childhood home. It seems that even though Jack says he no longer believes in God, he somehow continues to feel Jesus watching him through these pictures. And Jack himself might be seen as a gloss on the beautiful text in the form of a clumsy image. The beautiful text is that he's created by God but the clumsy image is the ways that he fails to live into that identity in the way others often treat him as less than human. Jack's a sort of catalyst character in these novels. Like the prodigal son, the question is, what do you see when you look at him? A fool who squandered his inheritance on hedonistic living or a son who is worthy of killing the fatted calf? Jack seems to draw people's compassion or their dislike just from looking at him. Old ladies take pity on him and men beat him up just from looking at him. He aspires to be harmless, to keep people safe from his propensity to damage fragile things. But harmlessness is hard to achieve because Jack can't be truly invisible. Being seen by other people involves hatred or dismissal, but it also involves love. He knows that if he went home, his father would embrace him weeping. So he has to stay alive to keep giving his father hope. His significance can never really disappear while he's aware of how much he means to his father. Like it or not, people keep loving Jack, which means that he can't be harmless. In the novel Gilead, after the events of the novel Jack, Jack returns home. His sister Glory and his father welcome him with open arms, just as he predicted. Glory in particular remembers this moment when she bonded with Jack as a child he was the only one who noticed her loneliness over her sister leaving. She felt seen by him. He said, poor pigtails will be all alone. And so he's felt that, that they were both 
um, she's, she's felt like she's always had this bond with him and she can see him in a way that the other um, siblings can't. But really all of the Bowdens have always forgiven Jack immediately for whatever he does, even when it causes deep grief. John Ames describes Jack as not the eldest or the youngest or the best or the bravest, only the most beloved. But Ames doesn't have the same tolerance for Jack that the Boutons do. He remembers Jack's youthful crimes, how he painted his steps with molasses or honey or something and the ants swarmed all over them or he broke windows or he set his mailbox on fire. He used to do that kind of thing all the time. Um, and he knows everything that he's put his family through. Even though he's Jack's godfather, the one who baptized him, he's never felt any affection for Jack. He wishes that he didn't have to see Jack at all when he comes back. And he mm -hmm. says seeing Jack with his father has been one of the great irritations of his life. Jack and Lila have both lived hard lives. And so, they, so when Lila meets Jack, they quickly develop this shared understanding. They're the same in some ways, having both experienced the seedy side of the world and having lived in the city never really having a home, unlike Ames, who's lived in the same city, his small town his whole life, and the same um, place that his, his father and grandfather lived. So when Ames is preaching and he sees Jack sitting beside Lila in church, he experiences jealousy, the desire to be younger and to have longer with his wife and his child. When Ames looks at Jack, he sees him as someone who's not to be trusted, and even as a potential rival for Lila and Robbie's affection. So he wants to warn Lila about Jack and he wrestles with this throughout the novel. Should I say something to her? Should I say you shouldn't trust him, you should stay away? But he doesn't say anything and Jack's very surprised by this. So Ames struggles to forgive Jack for the grief that he has caused, both in his minor pranks and in his true harm. And the worst of this was when Jack, when he was probably early twenties, got a young poor girl pregnant and then abandoned her. The family took the baby in for a while, but the child ended up dying at age three um, with Boughton holding her. So Jack never came to see the baby or to acknowledge her as her, his own. Ames writes that one man should lose his child, which Ames did, and the next man should just squander his fatherhood as if it were nothing. Well, that does not mean that the second man has transgressed against the first. I don't forgive him. I wouldn't know where to begin. Jack and Ames have multiple conversations that invariably in involve a lot of misunderstanding between them. Ames wrestles with what it means to love this man who doesn't seem to deserve the love that his father gives to him. He thinks, I fell to thinking about the passage in the Institutes where it says that the image of the Lord in anyone is much more than reason enough to love him. Now the Lord stands waiting to take our enemy's sins upon himself. So it is a rejection of the reality of grace to hold our enemy at fault. Jack has grieved his father terribly, and he has been forgiven always, instantly. And I have only grieved about him myself when he has felt I was slow to forgive Jack too. In a way, Boughton and Ames are two different fathers to Jack. Boughton is unconditionally forgiving, always ready to kill the fattened calf. And Ames is a father who's more like the prodigal's elder brother, jealous and suspicious. But slowly Ames begins to love Jack in a way that he was never able to do when Jack was a child. He considers the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus puts us here in the role of the father, of the one who forgets. Because if we are, so to speak, the debtor, and of course we are that too, that suggests no graciousness in us. 
and grace is the great gift. So to be forgiven is only half the gift. The other half is that we can also forgive, restore, and liberate. And therefore, we can feel the will of God enacted through us, which is the great restoration of ourselves to ourselves. So over time, Ames begins to see Jack more like how Della sees him. He writes, why do I worry so much over this Jack Benton? Love is holy because it is like grace. The worthiness of its object is never really what matters. In one moment, Jack and Ames are sitting together on the porch at night, and Ames reflects. The idea of grace had been so much on my mind. Grace is a sort of ecstatic fire that takes things down to the essentials. There in the dark and quiet, I felt I could forget all the tedious particulars and just feel the presence of his mortal and immortal being. And a sensation came over me, a sort of lovely fear that made me think of Belton's fear of angels. This is a kind of similar moment to what happens in the graveyard with Jello, Della and Jack, Jella and Jack. <laughs> Sometimes we can see more clearly in the dark when certain familiar elements are stripped away. If you've ever had a conversation late at night beside a fire, that's often true. Um, and the, the cliches, cliches can be easier to re rehabilitate when things seem a little bit strange. Finally, Jack opens up to Ames and shows him the picture of Della and Robert, his son, and explains his story. And Ames begins to understand Jack's turmoil in a whole new light. And he sees Jack's loyalty to his family. Jack seemed to him like a father who couldn't care less about his child, but it turns out that he does have a child that he cares for very much and a wife just as Ames does. So finally, Ames seems to see Jack truly and he receives his confession and tries to encourage him. In the end, Jack decides to leave Gilead before all of his siblings fill the house to be with their dying father. And to me, the most beautiful scene in, in all the novels is um, at the end, Ames gives Jack a blessing at the bus stop with his hand on his head. And he recognizes and blesses Jack's deep humanity, both the terror and the beauty of it. Okay, so that is some ways that grace is, is mediated through these relationships. And I just have one short little section to close this talk here. Um, and that is just to reflect a little bit more about what a Christian way of seeing includes. And I'm gonna push it back a little bit against Robinson here much as I love her. Um, so when we think about encountering the other, whether it's a moment of beauty in nature or a moment of being seen by someone that we love, there are two elements we can see, the universal and the particular. We might look at someone and we see their humanity in this way that connects them to us because of our shared experience and, and our shared identity is being created by God. And so these are universals, that humans all contain the image of God, and are all valuable and glorious. On the other hand, part of what makes a particular person particularly beautiful to us is grounded in the temporal physical world and how we interact with these changing circumstances. I'm gonna read Della's quote again about the soul. Um, sorry, missed a few. Okay, we all have souls, we know this, but just because it's a habit to believe it, not because it is really visible to us most of the time. But once in a lifetime, maybe you look at a stranger and you see a soul, a glorious presence out of place in this world. And if you love God, every choice is made for you. There is no turning away. You've seen the mystery. You've seen what life is about, what it's for. And a soul has no earthly qualities. 
no history among the things of this world, no guilt or injury or failure, no more than a flame would have. There is nothing to be said about it except that it is a holy human soul, and it is a miracle when you recognize it. So it's always hard when you're reading a novel to know if it's the author <laughs> giving her opinion or if it's a character giving her opinion. Um, and I don't know with this quote, but I'm gonna take it seriously and respond to it because it is a really important moment in the book. When I read it at first, I thought, well, that's so beautiful. <laughs> and then I started thinking about it a bit more. Um, and, and it seems to me that what Della takes to be the soul kind of has this platonic bent to it. So the soul is this transcendent essence that can't be spoiled by the things of this world that's disconnected from much of what makes us human and somehow from sin. Um, it has no, no history among the things of this world, no guilt or injury or failure. Um, and it's this way of thinking is, is to create a sacred secular divide as if the details of someone's life are kind of unimportant. And, and as Jack says, this marriage of true minds is the only thing that matters. And this can be a particularly romantic way of seeing things that actually diminishes the importance of the ordinary. If Robinson believes what Dill is saying here, this is kind of strange because what she does so beautifully, especially in Gilead, is to capture the significance of very ordinary things, Jack's geranium or the shower of water coming off of the branch. So I find this to be a bit of a contradiction in her novels and maybe particularly between Jack and, and Gilead, uh, this tension between the universals and the particulars. Francis Schaeffer used this very helpful phrase to describe humans as glorious ruins. Probably all of you have heard that by now. And there's this glory that we were created for. And then there's the ruin of sin and living in a fallen world. And I would say that what Della sees when she looks at Jack is not really his soul so much, but the weight of his glory, the glory of how he reflects the image of God. Della says that this exempts Jack from judgment, but I don't think that it does. There is also the ruin of Jack and the ways that he's ruined some other people's lives. And that is also part of who he is, and it's something to be grappled with. So it's true that we have these almost transcendent moments of seeing the world in each other, but one moment of seeing is not enough. Trust and intimacy are built over time as we learn each other's character. I have, and maybe you have too, experienced what felt like this very profound, instant, intense connection with somebody, only to realize later that person was not <laughs> what I saw in that moment. There was a lot more under the surface and some of it was not trustworthy and not good. So as humans bearing the image of God, we have the call to see in those around us that same image of God, no matter how well we know them, could be a stranger on the street. At the same time, we have to take into account the reality of sin and brokenness. So there shouldn't be this idealized kind of love, even though relationships do often start up that way, we can't know everything about somebody. It takes time to truly see the other. J John Eames says, in every important way, we are such secrets from each other. It takes time for our secrets to be revealed and for us to grapple with shame and repentance about our past, even as God transforms us to be more like him. The only person who can see truly with just a glance is Jesus. <laughs> And we find many stories of him encountering strangers in this way that recognizes their sins, but it gives them full dignity. So think of the woman caught in adultery, whom Jesus didn't condemn, but he also told to go and sin no more. Brett brings that up often. <laughs> or the Samaritan woman 
who felt so seen after a brief conversation with Jesus that she told her friends, he told me everything I ever did. Well, he didn't, but she felt seen by him. And he challenged her sinful behavior, though. And it didn't bring condemnation to her. She felt somehow graced through this encounter. Truly seen that it brought life, not condemnation. One of my favorite verses in scripture is when Jesus meets the rich young ruler. It says, he looked at him and he loved him. I've often wondered what that look would be like from Jesus. Jesus sees through all the man's wealth to what his heart is truly longing for. And he offers him freedom from his obsession with things. This is the free gift of grace. Even though the man chooses to walk away from it. Grace is something not only given, but it has to be received. Because only God can truly see us. Only God knows the full weight of our glory and of what needs to be forgiven. We can extend the grace of God through seeing each other as best as we can, warts and all, and still offering love and forgiveness. But ultimately, only God can truly, truly see us and truly offer us the grace that knows us just as we are without one plea. As Ames says, life is a very deep mystery. And finally, the grace of God is all that can resolve it. And the grace of God is also a very deep mystery. Okay, thank you. Just over the hour. So happy to hear some thoughts and especially glad that a few of you have read these books. Um, did you see the uh, relationship that you described between uh, Ames? And no, Lila and Matt. You talked about it very briefly. Yes. Did you see that in any? I thought you talked about it very briefly, but I thought it was you said something very significant. I was wondering if you saw that in any other places in the world. That or was that just? Yeah, I just communicated. The did I see what in particular? Um, um, you said when he looked at her, he didn't see her. Like her humanity, or yeah, he saw her. Sorry, but... I don't know if I tell her. So, I just was wondering if you saw. I'm not sure exactly what I want to say, but I contrast. So, that's the contrast between the way that he saw her and the way that Ames saw her, her, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. But um, um, are there any other places in the novels where we see that contrast? I mean, I think the way that a lot of people look at Jack is also like very dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. um, tends to be more, well, I guess, I guess you could say that, that Ames kind of sees Jack a little bit that way. Um, like he struggles to see, you know, past sort of the, the exterior, uh, and he's even jealous and suspicious about, of him. Um, but then there's like a lot of random strangers up on the street who just kind of see Jack as a riffraff, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that that would be another example. Um, and Lila too, I think, yeah, so, so there's like other people and they're kind of see her that way. But I think, I would say probably Mac is the one, the most who kind of, well, like is purposeful. really, yeah, like is really kind of cruelly almost. I think the clerk does that a bit. The clerk in the boarding house does that a bit to Jack because he'll kind of tease him about like, 
you know, he won't, he'll like take his money or stuff from the room or like say, oh, I have two letters, just kidding, I have one, oh, I have two, you know, just kind of like play, play with his, his feelings a bit, you know? So I think there's people like that who really kind of pick up on, on a person's vulnerabilities and sort of like use those against them. So maybe that's sort of what you're yeah. saying with Mac. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's like very damaging when some, you know, and I think that that's kind of like, yeah, not to, to make an equivalent, yeah, like it's not equivalent what happened to me with the shoes but it was sort of a moment like that where it was like those older girls saw like wow look at this <laughs> look at this young girl who's like so proud of her she, she's so excited like let's go and kind of take take her down and so I think that there's something particularly damaging when you're kind of experiencing like the glory of what it <laughs> what it means to be in this world and to be kind of living into who you are and then someone sees that thing and it's like that's the thing where I'm gonna stick the knife and turn kind of like I think that's that's a very damaging mm -hmm. thing yeah that it's and I think that's where where often Satan like chooses to attack us too is those points where we most reflect the glory of God like those are the things where he wants that he wants to target and to destroy um, yeah and I think that's good to remember too you know that that's not just other people doing it to us that there's evil that wants to specifically tear down things about us. Sometimes, you know, <clears throat> like it's not just a, a thing that you have or that people poke fun of, but like it could be a friend of yours as well. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's that, like and even the, like being associated with Jesus mm -hmm. is. So, I mean, you could talk about God all day long with some people, but you mentioned the name of Jesus. Right. Opening yourself up to the shame. Right. Right. And Jesus talks about, like, whoever's ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of, which is a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a scary, it's kind of a scary verse. <laughs> um, but Jesus will, will give glory to those who are not ashamed of him. Um, but, yeah, I think there's... Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things that 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 are not necessarily shameful, but we so shame is like the feeling of shame is not always correlated to guilt. Guilt is a different thing from shame. So we can feel shame for things that are shameful, or we can feel shame for things that are actually good things, like loving Jesus, you know. And so I think that it's not a really a reliable emotion necessarily. Uh, so yeah, sometimes it is correlated to something something to be ashamed of but you know I've thought a lot about shame and whether it's like a good emotion because mm -hmm. immediately we think oh that's that's just terrible but I think it, it it does it's like a symptom that tells us you know something's wrong here and so I think you know we say like have you no shame <laughs> to someone who's just brazenly doing something terrible I don't think it's a place that we're supposed to stay though you know it's like oh i touched the burner <laughs> it burns take my hand away so shame is telling us okay you know if if it's actually correlating to guilt it's telling us okay you, there's there's a call to repentance now but don't stay don't stay in that place don't wallow in shame i don't think that's helpful um but i think shame can be twisted when you know we get messages from all different kinds of people and our, ourselves um that this is like certain things are not are shameful or not acceptable that actually might even be ways that God is revealing himself to us. Even that 
time, it's our task to embrace the shame. Yes. It is, it feels. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And in doing that, we are being like Christ because Jesus despised the shame of the cross. So Jesus enters into the most shameful place and he despises it. <laughs> so that's, that's the gospel. For, and that was for the joy that was set before him, which is us. Um, Sam, Sam said, uh, I've heard that guilt is about what we do and shame is about what is done to us. That's interesting. I haven't heard that before. I think I've certainly felt shame for things that I've done before to other people mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I've also heard, I think it's Brene Brown who says like, uh, sh- Guilt is the sense of I've done something bad and shame is I am bad. So it's much more the sort of condemnation of who I am. Um, but there, you know, there is a sense in which, you know, we are, we are affected by the fall and so we do bad things, but there is also like a, you know, like sort of a deeper corruption too. Um, that's why I think this sort of idea of the soul as this like untouched kind of thing. Well, I think that, that, that sin is pervasive there and, and God can redeem that. But I don't think that there's kind of like, we can separate into two parts. Like here's the, you know, this untouched part of us. I don't know, maybe other people have more theological thoughts about that, but. Um. Do, you find, is it, do you find this like, old? are they quite old fashioned feeling? Like it's hard to know how many pictures I look. Like, <laughs> does it feel like a plenary honor, like time period or like, or well, mostly set in the 40s and 50s, but um, in terms of sort of writing style more or? Just the, the innocence yeah. of the, yeah. The, the yeah, I, I think some people, I mean, some people may fa- find it a bit, some of them a bit depressing, like Jack is, he has a kind of sad life. <laughs> so there's that, um, but I guess, like I said, Julia's just asking about kind of the tone of the novels. Uh, and I, I, I see that, you know, there continue to be these moments of beauty and humanity, despite all the things that are kind of trying to drag it down in these novels, which is why I think I find it very reassuring, them very reassuring to read because she, she, she says, yeah, there are these terrible things that people do in the world and even in us, but there is still grace beyond that and forgiveness. Um, yeah, I, I think there is like a real innocence and I don't know everything about her theology, but I was watching an interview with her and someone was commenting on like the very chaste nature of the relationship between um, between Jack and Della and kind of surprised by that because these books are very popular outside of the Christian world as well. And uh, she's like, <laughs> I really like how she sometimes answers questions. She says like almost nothing. She's like, yep. People were surprised by that. <laughs> That's all she says. <laughs> so I think, you know, she's, what exactly she's trying to communicate, but a certain way of not treating other people as just objects, you know? Um, one, one reviewer was saying, oh, he didn't like the novel Jack because he thought, people, oh, they didn't even, you know, allow themselves lust or anything like these kind of like tumultuous Shakespearean emotions and I was like that's kind of the point like they're they're trying to treat each other they're trying to care about you know what effect their relationship will have on each other and that's why they're using restraint you know so so it's interesting how people have a very different set of values can interpret that kind of thing the innocence that you talk about yeah can you comment on how you think the why they're so popular. 
Yeah. Lisa's asking about why are these books so popular among people who aren't Christians when especially Gilead, I would say, is very yeah. explicitly Christian and a lot of I mean the character Ames is talking, but I think that Robinson's faith really comes across through it as well. Mm-hmm. Um I think I mean I think there's just a real depth to him as a character and to the way that he sees the world. Um and I think it's partly that kind of like uh, I've lived through this life and now I'm communicating the wisdom that I've gained to to the next generation sort of so it it has like a lot of weightiness it's not easy to write write that kind of novel you know uh and and I think it, it yeah it I, but I would say partly it is that he's very honest about who he is like his own faults and flaws and he has the struggle to like the struggle to forgive Jack to kind of reconcile with him is kind of very core in his admissions of you know fear about not being there to protect his son as he grows up and what if Jack's his rival and all these different things that he's 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 not kind of a sanctimonious Christian you know he's he has some real wisdom and depth but he um is human too and so I think that's where this kind of when Marilyn Robinson is at her best is this kind of like uh very ordinary very human and yet something really beautiful and profound that comes through that too. So I think that's the, like, like I said, I think it's that that comes through. And I think we all experience that. That's the common grace thing, right? All of us have those moments where we're like, okay, I, you know, someone who doesn't believe in meaning or in God, for example, still has these moments, like, you know, the birth of a child or falling in love where you have to kind of suspend disbelief in unbelief because there's something so beautiful that happens there that you have to act like it has meaning. You can't act consistently uh, with meaninglessness. So I think there's some, I would say that, I don't know. I mean, I I haven't read them as without belief, but um, yeah, I think her characters are very complex. Uh, She doesn't give easy answers to things either. Like a lot of the questions that, you know, uh, Lila struggles a lot with the idea of hell that the people that she knew from her past life would be going to hell because they didn't know Jesus. And that's like, so that's like one that the novel grapples with or Jack, you know, what is like, am I going to hell? I don't believe, I don't know how to believe in God. You know, at one point he wants to tell his dad that he believes in God so his dad can die happily. Um, and so it's just these really deep things and family relationships, which we all experience too, that are so complex. Um, and so I think it's that that like combination of depth and not giving easy answers that I, I would guess maybe someone else has a thought about that. Um. You know, um, it not having read any of her work, it's very hard to really grasp it. I mean, it's not difficult to understand grace and how it's handled and and that is really just quite beautiful but it's very difficult to get a hold of the individuals these these mm-hmm. persons that uh, have a history mm-hmm. i mean that ideally have a history but you're not really given it although you know there's this mention of of soul having a history or something of that nature so it's it's very hard for me to 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 grasp it, but I I I I mean what she describes is certainly things that 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 we experience that happen to people, and you know, but uh, 
I mean, this this seeing, being seen, and all of this kind of thing. But this dwelling on that, I, I always see people more in a historical manner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we 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 are we are our history. We have a history. We embody history, and so this is very different. No, I, I, I would like to frame a question, but I can't really quite frame it because I feel I have no hold of a person. Yeah, yeah, I know it's a hard lecture to give because there's only so much space that I have, and and if you don't, if you haven't read the novels, it can be sort of difficult to totally get a, a purchase on it. So I get that, um, but I, I'd be interested in hearing a bit more what you have to say about seeing someone as historical are you sort of talking about you know seeing someone as as who they are through their past as well or yes i mean to me i mean since since there is a relationship the relationship between person and god mm-hmm. um and, uh, the thing is we're born and uh, we're born into certain circumstances of certain people so that uh, we have a, a history that's out there. We, there, there is a, the large history that's part of us uh, because of the country into which we were born, et cetera, et cetera, and or, and, or the crises um, that, that are there. So, uh, and we, we really, in a sense, we are that history. And when I say we embody uh, that history is, it's it's we're wounded by it mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. and and we carry the wounds of that history in us right. um so it makes uh, people to my mind very concrete mm-hmm. uh, i have the sense of these very concrete human beings mm-hmm. uh and when you describe her I don't quite get it. I mean, I do get some of the characteristics that obviously one had a lot of trouble and did some wrong things. And mm-hmm. uh, but but of course, your focus is totally different. I mean, because I think her conception of what is a human being is probably totally different from, or not totally, but in some m- significant way, maybe different from what I was just saying. The person is. Yeah, I think that's something I'm kind of wrestling with in, in, in working out this lecture because I think that's something that sort of perplexed me about she does in, in some ways the characters are very, some of the characters I'd say are very rooted, like Ames lives in the house that his, at least his grandfather lived in maybe longer uh, in the same small town that he grew up in and lived his whole life. So he's, and he reflects a lot on his family history through his writing, which I didn't get into because I was only right, you know, talking about one specific aspect of the novels. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's like a very rooted character and most of the people in Gilead are. And then you get these kind of drift, drifting, unrooted characters uh, like Jack and Lila. Um, and, and Robinson seems to play with those two tensions a lot, like the rooted person okay. and then the, the drifting person. And what she actually said in the interview was that she likes, the person asked her, why do you return to these sort of vagrant characters? Because in her first mm-hmm. novel, Housekeeping, it's also about that kind of vagrant woman. Um, and she says she's interested in, in sort of the essential human when they have everything kind of stripped away from them. So I, I think that's a, 
uh, yeah, I'm still grappling with, with that because I think I agree with you, Carla, like we are shaped by our culture, our family culture, the place that we live, um, so many different things, the, the wounds that we have and the wounds that other people have given to us. And we can't sort of see ourselves as this, like no man is an island, right? We're not this isolated. <laughs> that's why I have the problem with this idea of like just the soul that's sort of not touched by anything else because I think we are shaped <laughs> through our life into who we become. Uh, so, so I don't know exactly in which way she means that sort of essential human as if this is like a kind, I don't know if she means that's like a more pure thing almost that she wants to hone in on. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't, so I don't know exactly what she's saying about that, but I think that tension is coming up for me because I, I, I feel that, it, and I think that being rooted is important actually too, and, and knowing your history. And she seemed to say that, you know, the Iowans have lost their own connection to their own history and she wanted to kind of go back into that. So she seems to see these two things, like both the value for being rooted, knowing mm. your history. I know, and yeah, connection. you're making a good point there. I but can then, see that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if, yeah, I don't know. She seems to kind of have this value for both things. The character who is disconnected mm -hmm. and is still, and yet is still human, is still fully worthy of dignity, even if they don't have that home and that rootedness. And then the people who do, and who maybe have some blind spots because of that as well. That's possible. I don't know. Is that answering your question? Because I think- Yeah, I'm yeah. No, no, you are, you're addressing the question. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, and, and, and of course she plays, I mean, uh, there's this theology as, I mean, uh, and the psychology and the whole, you know, it's, well, it's, 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 it's interesting. I, I've just not read anything along those lines. Maybe it's because I'm a social scientist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so one looks more at, uh, you know, relationships and this, uh, the concreteness of certain uh, things out there and of the person and all that. But well, you'd probably find it quite interesting to see some of the family dynamics if you read one of her books. Um, yeah. She but develops the families is what you're saying. Yeah, that's a big part of it is kind of how these, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. how, people's, how people are known through their family relationships too, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But trying to cover four novels in one lecture is quite a lot. So. <laughs> No, no, you did a beautiful job. So uh, that you you can only handle one thing. It's just you you know some of us in the in the audience. Um, uh, and you did give background, by the way. But uh, some of us in the audience who have not read it, yes, and now are coming across a very different way of handling the human or how she focuses on the human in terms of these characteristics of seeing and you know being seen and all that so. right for sure yeah yeah <laughs> right i see There's your hand here. your hand and your do you want to oh you're unmuted okay great yes uh, i was when i read the book i thought the the two ministers uh could could do with a lot more treating uh, oh. I was interested by their relationship, and I thought mm. uh, there were a lot of questions she left about that. Mm. What kind of questions did you did you have? Oh, the the the, the she focuses on on uh, certain 
expectations between the two that aren't fulfilled. And there, I didn't think there was, there was much meat for, to describe that there was enough between them to be, for them to be interested in each other. The friendship, so the friendship between Belton and Ames, it seemed like it wasn't that deep to you. Well, it wasn't developed much. Well, it wasn't de developed enough to sort of give you a sense of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I'd have to think more about that. Uh, you know, like they kind of shared a childhood together and you sort of see different snapshots of those moments, but, and then they kind of have these different, they like to have theological conversations and argue about their differences. So you kind of see that, but um, yeah, I, I mean. Well, the book wasn't about that, so I can understand. No. I mean, that's part of it, but it's not, yeah, it's, it's not, I don't know what the, cent the central. The novels can get too long if you <laughs> That's true. You can't, you can't. And I think, I think also Robinson tends to leave a lot of mystery and kind of like all of, all of her novels have very loose endings that you don't really know what happens to the characters and it kind of it leaves it very open, um, which some people find difficult. And so uh, I like it because <laughs> you kind of get a sense that the characters' lives are continuing on after after the novel's over. Um, but so I would say that in the relationships too, there's a lot of stuff that she doesn't say. She's a lot of conversation she doesn't reveal uh, that you kind of have to fill in, in the details. But yeah, I mean, different, some people <laughs> feel differently about that, you know? So I don't know, I have to, I have to think about that next time I read it. Can I just say one, one, yes. one little thing? Is, 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 are you saying, is, is her interest showing the, the working of theology and the life of people at some level could you say that yes it, i think so. yeah yeah she's very she's very theological and very philosophical um and i'd say especially gilead really brings up a lot of theological concerns um, because it's a preacher writing it uh so i mean it didn't go into all of, all of the theological things she talks about but uh but yeah they're quite they're quite theologically rich books mm -hmm. okay yeah, so so all, all of them really kind of consider grappling with those things, like I said, sort of, you know, predestination, the sacraments, um, mm -hmm. all different kinds of things. So yeah, it's, she, yeah, she's, she's a good thinker. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, hope, I hope that you get a chance to read, uh, read one of the books. I think that that's if there's one thing I can give you. Um, so Gilead is a very slow one. Some people find that a little too slow for them. Um, but uh, I think it's probably also kind of like the deepest one. So if you want one that's a little faster, maybe, yeah, Lila, I would say Lila or Home would be a little easier to get into. So, so yeah, go and check it out from your library because I'm sure they have copies. <laughs>